Support for Oyster World Radio comes from you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, visit the link in the show description or visit patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio. Your support is the rocket fuel as I take the challenges of a podcaster on the road. So support the show. More support means meeting more people that you normally would never meet. Become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio and support the show today. Welcome to Oyster World. Radio. Hello, Oysters, and welcome to another episode of Oyster World Radio, the podcast where we broaden our perspectives by listening to the stories of people from all over the globe. It's easy to get trapped in the day-to-day routines of our own personal bubbles, but there are billions of ways to live the one life you got. It's my job to find those ways and bring them to you. I'm Nathan Lieberman, and in this episode, I get to talk to Miles Zebot. Miles has got one of the more interesting stories I've heard in a long time. Not only is he pretty far from the beaten path, but Miles had to redefine himself significantly multiple times. The last being in Singapore, which is no small feat. How Miles went from having nothing to something in one of the hardest job markets in the world is really something. It's more of an art than anything else. To put into perspective how seriously Singapore takes their rules, on my custom forms, in big red letters it read, All Drug Trafficking Offenses Punished by the Death Penalty. This is not a country that you want to mess with. But Miles gets it done, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy how he does it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So Miles, thank you for coming on to Oyster World Radio. We're really excited to have you. We're here in Singapore on me and Jackie's escape from winter, and it's so nice not to be fucking cold for once in my life, because Eastern Europe, it's hell out there. (laughs) It's <laughs> hell out here compared to here. I mean, you say that, but we miss the cold out here. Yeah, well, 80 to 100% humidity, 32 degrees every day, year in, year out. I could totally see where that'd be really annoying for our 365 days but out of the year. But for your trip, but, it's excellent. Uh, are you kidding me? For three months, this is heaven. I don't have to be <laughs> cold. I don't have to worry about jackets. I'm sweating my ass off every single second of every single day. But yeah, you get what you pay for. Welcome to Singapore. <laughs> Welcome to Singapore. So I'm here in Singapore. Couchsurfing, and man, I'm really loving couchsurfing. And you were really generous to host me and some other couchsurfers. So at first, you didn't know if you had a place to stay for me, but using whatever magical building schools you had, you pretty much built me and Jackie a room well, upstairs. Well, it's, it's rare these days that you get a good couchsurfing request. Really? It used to be, you used to get a lot of very nice requests, just, just interesting people traveling through. And now couchsurfing, I get or at least five requests a week, which are just like, I am coming at this date, I need a place to stay. And that's, that's it. People just use the site as, a, as a hotel or a free accommodation kind of thing. There's no effort going into to doing things. And that's the whole point, is to get to know people from around the world. Exactly. Well, it's, it's more just that if I'm going to take the time out of my day to, to you know, host you, to show you Singapore, to show you life here, yeah. The least you can do is, is write my name at the top of the message. And you know, just they don't even write your name at the top of the message. Like these different things. And ah, it's very frustrating. So when someone like you comes along who's read my profile and writes a really good, just 
uh, request that goes into detail about, you know, I think we'll get along about this, I think we'll get along about this. And I'll bend over backwards to help that person every day because they're few and far between. And you definitely have. This has been a really, really fun experience. Your house is amazing and you've just absolutely opened it up. I couldn't believe that the door was unlocked when I showed up. We're just like, oh yeah, just come in and start yelling and we'll be here. And mm -hmm. sure enough, that's exactly the yeah, way no, it is. The advantage of living in Singapore. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has their doors unlocked and, you know. Yeah, it's definitely one of the nicest, most safe feeling cities I've been in in a while. And that's saying something because Eastern Europe was absolutely safe as well. You could walk around any time of night by yourself and no problem. But here it's, well, same thing. You could walk around yeah, any time of night with wallet and phone in your hand and no one's going to do anything. They say that you pay the ultimate price for safety over here. You know, there might be a lack of, certain lack of freedoms and a certain lack of other things that you get, but the ability to not ever have to worry about being scared or being mugged or, or having any of these things, it makes it very hard for people from Singapore to ever leave the country. Yeah. Because whenever they go anywhere else, they feel in danger all yeah. the time. So it's, it's... That's a really good point. Maybe it's setting the bar too high. Yeah, I mean, in some sense it's setting the bar too high. In other sense, it's a great way to make people not leave the country and keep contributing to the economy. Yeah. You know? And, you know, there, there, there's a huge stereotype of Singapore and their rules and everything. And after meeting you and getting to know you, and as we dive into your story here, it's still it's so hilarious to me that I find you here in the city of rules and the country of rules and restricted freedoms. So let's Every, get into everyone it. finds their own path, and while there's a lot of rules in place, the more rules there are, the more ways there are to, you know, um, we'll say be creative. Be creative, exactly. <laughs> and there's definitely a lot of that theme, a creative theme to your life. So. Let's get into it. Let's get let's get these listeners to know Miles a little bit. Okay. So you're you're an English guy. You were born in England. Correct. Yeah, I was born in Liverpool. Um, yeah, nice nice childhood. Grew up in a in a really nice place. Uh, never really got along with school too well. Had a few. Uh, well, I wasn't really good with authority. I I always questioned why. Why are there these rules in place? Why should I... In school you don't I, really get a say. It's these rules or not. So that was not exactly but the path. I was very good at accepting that that was the case. As, you know, particularly, who are you to tell me what to do? I exactly. Mean, um, so myself and school never really got along too well. Uh, but thankfully there were enough schools for me to keep moving between. To keep me out <laughs> So of you had to keep moving. So what, what, were you, what would be a good example of you breaking the system or, you know, of you looking at a rule and going, nah, I don't like that so much. Just things like, you know, if you kick your ball on the roof of the school, you're not allowed to climb on the roof of the school to get your ball. Yeah, because that seems perfectly, you yeah, know, I, mean, I accidentally kicked it up there, I'm so I have to go get it. stop playing because I can't get my football. I can just climb up there and get my ball, man. <laughs> yeah. So you, you do like climbing things a lot. I do too. like climbing things a lot. So that started pretty young when you were climbing schools. Yeah. Yeah, you got yeah. kicked out for climbing schools, or was there something else? Uh, I mean, there was one particular case. I got kicked out one for um, it was a German exchange. So yeah. I climbed on the roof and started yelling, "The Germans are coming! The Germans are coming!" <laughs> I didn't appreciate that. Uh, that was certainly a contributing factor to exiting that school. So that one, 
Okay, so that pretty much sums it up. You got kicked out of a lot of schools. And it was really, it, it definitely wasn't your grades. It was more of the, you know, why can't I do this? Why can't I do this? Yeah, particularly from the age of kind of 11 onwards, I really just decided that the school I was at, I really didn't want to be at. Yeah. And so I just downed tools and, you know, I, I could always I could always get through. Um, but I just decided I've, I've had it now. I don't want to do anymore. And um, yeah. So that led to probably the final being kicked out around about the age of, I think I probably just turned 15 Yeah, I got kicked out the last time. So you just, what was it some, uh, hopefully it's some major uh, the, the blockbuster. Last time, uh, not, not particularly. Um, I mean, there was, I mean, there was a fair few things. It, it's generally a culmination of factors. And it was so it wasn't ever one big major. It was never ever one big major thing. It was always, people would always, people who treated me with respect, or people, you know, my sports masters, for example, they would always, I'd be on every team, and they would always find and say, he's awesome, he, uh, yeah. he does everything I say, and it, it's just the people who wouldn't, who treat you as a kid, yeah. you know, they tell you what to do, and they wouldn't ask you, please do this, yeah. they tell you to do something, and I, I don't respond well. And you go, them. why? Why do I have to do that? Yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And then you yeah. didn't. didn't, or you did something else. Exactly. <laughs> So around 15 was about the last time. Yeah. And after that, I could probably imagine you're 15 years old. You don't have school to do. There's no real structure. Uh, from when we were talking before, you just watched a lot of TV, like a lot of 15-year-olds would do after getting kicked oh, out yeah. of school. Yeah, that a lot, like a a lot of TV. I mean, the, the hardest part was not having anyone around during the daytime. Because you, you finish school and all of a sudden you're... you're at home and everybody your age or everybody you know is off at school is off at school yeah and you know even I mean, it sounds stupid but even the ways you would normally get in trouble at the weekends you know just like yeah. riding your bike around or doing different things everyone's not no one's expecting kids to be doing that during the week so no one's there to tell you off and it kind of Things lose their appeal very quickly, you know. When, <laughs> when you're not, you know, a little bit in danger here and there. The bikes and the rangers would always come along at the weekend, and you always have a little chase through the woods with the rangers chasing you. And at the week, you could just go and spend all day there every day, so and, this no, isn't and no fun. one would come along. And you're like, oh well. By the time you've done it for like three weeks, you're like, oh man, I wish someone would come and chase me again. Which is so funny too because I feel like every kid's dream is to not have school, to be able to have all the time to themselves. Mm -hmm. I experienced this on this trip a little bit when I quit my job and left and got to Germany and then realized that I had all the time to myself. The friends I made had work too, so I had to entertain myself. They're like, oh shit, well maybe I have to think of some way to entertain myself. And well, that's exactly what you did, but it's kind of the opposite of what I expected. You went back to school or you yes, decided so to get back to school? My biggest problem was it wasn't the fact that, I mean, I, I really miss being around people. That was, that was a real key thing. Um, as a 15-year-old kid and having the main people you see around you as your parents all the time, that's pretty, that's pretty crap. Yeah, I don't uh, know what I would do if I had to spend no. every day with my parents. So that was Sorry, a big influence. Dad, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a big influencing factor in, in getting out. The other thing that was an influencing factor is, you know, it was never really to do with the not being able to do the work at school. It was a desire to not go along with what was happening at school, and um, just just among 
among people and among peers and among other people, just the way that I was perhaps badmouthed by other people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like a broken piece. He was a broken cog and couldn't fit in the system. Yeah. You know, so it kind of, and it wasn't, I wanted to really, it really frustrated me. And I really wanted to make the point, it's not because I can't, it's because I won't. Yeah. And the only reason, way I could think to kind of prove to people outside of that, you know, all the do-gooders who go along to school and they think... And that's a stereotype if you don't fit into Oh, he's broken, he couldn't make a, it. Yeah. Well... Sure as hell I could. Or are you broken for just fitting in with this fucked system, you know? Yeah. And so the way I decided to, to go about that and to be around people again was to go back to school. Um, although this time I picked a school where they did treat you a lot more like an old... I mean, I was... Uh, probably uh, 17, when I was 17 and 18. So you had about two kid. years of so had about two years. getting a rare perspective at 15 years old of what true boredom can be like. True boredom, so bored. Yeah. Daytime TV as a kid just, uh, it just sucks your it soul. It sucks your soul out so badly. And so I you were ready to go. <laughs> well, it gave me a really interesting perspective from that point as to what having no job and having none of your own money and just, you know, the level of tract that that makes you, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. You can't, you can't do anything. Right. You know, particularly as a kid, you can't you don't have a driving license, you can't do anything. And that boredom really inspired me to, to get out. And, and, and that was really where you probably developed your failure is not an option again, because you were not going back to that. There was no totally. way. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I think it was... I mean, perspective has changed slightly uh, more recently, but back then it was really to do with just proving other people wrong. You know, proving those people who thought that I couldn't do it, yeah. that I can do it. Yeah. Okay, and it's not not that I'm going to suddenly switch to their way of doing things. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. Okay, and that's when through college it was a it didn't happen overnight. Through college it was a. It was a working progress. There was lots of rule breaking and lots of, you know, um, lots of learning along the way. But by, sure. but by the end of it, I had, um, I had enough grades to, to go to university. That was, that was my goal. Get enough grades to go to university, prove that you, you know, you can. Yeah, so you were really driven by this, I need to... Maybe not show or prove to yourself and everyone else. Like, no, I, I can do it. This is just the way that I always, I, I always to do knew it. that I could do it. It was the fact that I just, at that point, I wanted to just prove to other people yeah. that that yeah, it was it was my not, things had I'm happened up to that point. Cog. It was my choice yeah. rather than me not being able to do it. Yeah, it was more of uh, showing a fault in the system rather than. Uh, I'm a broken piece. Exactly. Changing that mentality. Exactly. And at the end of it, you got your degree in philosophy in a very mm -hmm. tough program. Yeah, it was it was uh, tough times. I was firstly moving to Manchester to go to university was utterly awesome. It was the best thing, I think, you know, just the best decision ever. Firstly, I got away from everyone back at home and just landed in this bustling, vibrant city where yeah. I just had ultimate freedom to, to do whatever I wanted and to kind so of polar opposite. You make new friends and, and experience a level of kind of partying that I'd, was, I'd always dreamed of but never been able to, yeah. to really find. 
Um, and the course was, the course was really good. It was, it was cool to be around really clever people. And it, it wasn't what I had imagined it to be, to yeah. be quite honest. I had imagined, I don't know what I had imagined, but I'd imagined it to be more, um, you know, just, just, just chatting about things in an airy fairy kind of way. But it was, it was tough, man. It was, uh, yeah. There was supposed to be a lot of reading. You know, when you're reading something and you try and read the idiot's guide to it, you try and read the the book initially, and you read, you read yeah, I got half a page, yeah. and you think, no, can't do that. <laughs> then you find the dummy's guide to it, and then you read the dummy's guide to it, and you're like, nope, still, still not got nothing. And then you've got to find the dummy's guide to the dummy's guide before you can even start to kind of grasp things, and it's like. No oh, man, why didn't they just write it like this in the first place? Yeah. You know? Um, but it was tough. In the first year, I think we had maybe 180 people start, and only maybe 70 people finished the course on that first year. Yeah. Um, my Some my whole philosophy was just go program. to, just, I'm there, go to every lecture. In fact, there was a good proportion, particularly on Thursday mornings, I would show up and I would immediately go to sleep in the lecture. Every time I'd, I'd have been out playing rugby the night before and drinking heavily, but I, my my thinking was as long as I made it to every single lecture, you got to learn something. I've got to learn something. Yeah. As it happened, I would make it in immediately, fall asleep on the on the desk, and then wake up often several hours later when an empty lecture. <laughs> With no one the there, people, everyone yeah. just left you. They even wake you up. One of the one of the worst times was when I'd done. Uh, I had a lecture in there, and then after we had the seminar, so I walked into the, the lecture, I sat down, I fell asleep, uh, an hour went by, everyone went out, and had a break, and came back in for the seminar, did another hour, me still asleep at the table, not having moved, With the next they all seminar. left, and went out, and then there was an hour gap, and then the next class came in, and it was only when the next class came in, maybe three or four hours after I'd been asleep in there, that they actually woke me up. In fact, it was during that class that I woke up. They didn't wake me up at the start of the lecture. So you I woke up in a classroom a full class. of people who I didn't know who they were. I got a round of applause as I left. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, you deserve it after that. What were they teaching? We probably went from philosophy to some, uh, I've no hopefully, idea. theoretical physics or I, something I just, in between. It was a very confusing time. <laughs> but it, it's that, you know... Uh, I still put it down to that failure is not an option thing. The reason I got up to go to every one of these classes, even if I fell asleep in it, it was this idea that, you know, I'm, uh, it doesn't matter how hard I party or what I do, I have to still do the work and still, you know, and it was a lot of, you know, living in the library. Every essay drew in, you would go and live, the library was open 24 hours, so you yeah. would go and spend three days without going to home and just write and write and write and just try and put something together. Yeah. And uh, the reason, and that's what I, the reason a lot of people failed the course, the, the majority I'd say, is because they got to the deadline and they got so into the subject that they didn't want to hand in the essay at the point they were at because they were like, I'm oh, just starting to get over the tip of the iceberg here and I'm so close to doing this. And, my, but time's up, you guys. Heard I was it. like, guys, you've got to, you've got to hand it in, and yeah, know, that's, that's how it works. You can't lose ten points because of your own ego. And and pretty much everyone I know who dropped off the course was for exactly this reason that they they got so into a subject matter that they didn't want to hand in the essay when it got to it because they weren't finished. And I was like, unfinished essay. Yep. Yeah. 
And whatever points that gets me, at least I handed something in. <laughs> and you're not knocked off ten points exactly. for just holding on to it. Um, but you did. You, you you got through it, and it was. I mean, college is a weird time for a lot of people. It was their first breath of true freedom mm -hmm. with very intelligent people, but there's also no one holding you to the work and having that rare perspective earlier in your life of knowing what it's like to not have that freedom, you were, it seems like you were able to leverage that into an environment that you didn't have a great history in, as, as in you didn't really like the system, but were able to succeed in the system because you had this failure is not an option, I'm not going back and I'm going to prove that I can do this. Absolutely, and it's doing things in your own manner. When you have a goal, something to drive you through, it doesn't matter whether you, you, can, you can stick to that goal, but you can do it your own way. It's not yeah. like you have to give up everything in order to reach that goal. You know, I didn't, I wasn't one of these super nerdy students. There was a lot of them who hung around in yeah. the library. You know, I was only in the library when I had to get a When you had to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> only when you had to. You know? Um, yeah. And to be honest, through that, through that experience, I went to university with the idea that I was going to prove people wrong. You know, and by the time I reached the end, and it was hard, hard work, um, I'd proven that, not just to them, but to myself as well, because it was harder than I'd thought. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really key, key point too, is you also proved it to yourself. A lot of people, they start with the, maybe some outside reasons to do things, but at the end, they really, the really important factor is they proved it to yourself. Yeah. Especially the fact that you can do it your own way and get positive marks within a system. And I think that translates to the rest of what you did starting with after college. So but, you got a philosophy degree, but like most of us, we didn't really want to get a job. I also realized there's very few jobs you can get with a philosophy degree as well. So firstly, <laughs> I didn't want to get a job. I definitely didn't want to do that. And then I thought, well, even if I do get a job, what can I really do with a philosophy degree? Uh, so I came up with this master plan of um, doing a master's. Yeah. And I thought, what master's can I do? Philosophy doesn't really, I don't want to do it in philosophy, that's not going to get me anywhere. What can I do? And I thought, well, I need to do something that's more, more geared towards you know, a career or make money. Right. But again, I had no idea what I wanted to do at all. So um, in the end, I settled on entrepreneurial business, a master's in entrepreneurial business. And one of the best parts, of, so firstly I applied to the, the course and they told me immediately, oh, there's a waiting list of like 40 people, it's one of the top courses and you know, there's only 20 people on the course and there's already 40 people waiting to go on it. Gotcha. And I tried and tried and looked at other courses, but this was the one that I thought would work for me. It was a, a real general overview of everything to do with business all summarized into kind of one year. Yeah. And. Um, so I just decided that I was going to be on the course. And uh, I wrote a, a very well-worded letter as to why I was going to be on the course and why I deserved to be there and all this kind of thing. And on the day of the course starting, I showed up uh, with this letter and I handed it to the person and said, don't even read the letter. You know, I am here to start this course today because I have an entrepreneurial spirit. Okay, And I'm not going to accept no for, for an answer. And to double it, you're going to give me a scholarship for the course. And I'm not going to leave without that. And I sat down, and within half an hour, 
I had a place on the course and I had a scholarship on the course. And this really blows my mind too, and a lot of people struggle with this, because I know a lot of the opportunities I created myself are just doing that. It's looking at the situation as a whole, knowing that you have some red tape, and then figuring out a way to get around it. What's the worst that can happen in that situation? They say no, and they get security to come and drag you out. The feeling of sitting there with the butterflies, your heart going as fast as it can go, and and you're like... It's a little bit life, right? You feel feel life coming through. You know... Particularly when you pick an, an argument that works well. You know, for that course, the entrepreneurial spirit of not giving in yeah. was something that directly related to what I was doing. So it kind of, yeah, it kind it of worked very well. I used a similar tactic like that um, about a year ago in Singapore, and it really didn't work very well. It ended up with me being banned from all national monuments and not allowed to work with this particular government agency ever again because <laughs> it was considered an intimidation tactic. So I wouldn't recommend using that tactic for every occasion, but for that particular occasion, But knowing the well. situation and looking at ways <laughs> yeah. to exploit the situation is, um, Absolutely. is something, it's something to be talked about. And I think that you use that a lot post-college, and I think... We, we spent a lot of time talking about your background, this never giving up and this creative way of going about it because it, it set up the foundation of where you are today, which is in Singapore, mm-hmm. in the land of rules and carving out a, a place for yourself. You also did that back in England as a start. After this entrepreneurial course, you got in the course, you finished the course, and outside of it, it seemed that you used it right away to... Well, I really didn't want to get a job, job again. You know, I... I I have a real problem, not just with authority, but wearing smart clothes. I thoroughly detest wearing shiny shoes and a shirt. A tie or a suit is just... Hell, I even had to tell you to wear a shirt so I can put the mic on you. Oh, it was man. either that or your chest hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I really didn't want to get a job where I had to do something like that. Um, and so I, I decided to pick... I picked my favorite party. And I went to them and was like, guys, this, I want to work for you. And I initially started out uh, just applying for a job, handing out flyers for them in the street. And within the first meeting, it got to talking about how much I enjoyed climbing and, you know, I climbed scaffolding and I climbed buildings. And if they ever needed anything doing, I'm the guy. Yeah. Uh, it turned out that they did a lot of uh, installing of decorations, you know, inflatables for their parties and lights and things. Yeah. So they, they called me along and I, uh, it was just a job I took to really, really quickly. You know, yeah. getting to climb up things that required, you know, strength and agility and just a desire, you know, problem-solving ability. Yeah, physical problem-solving. Physical problem-solving ability. There's something really interesting about that, too. When you approached them, you came to them with a specific skill. You said, I want to work for you guys. This is something I'm really good at. And I think that's really important for them, at least for other people to think, like, okay, here's a guy that came to me. But he's also given me something to remember him by. Well, I, I just wanted to get my foot in the door. Every job yeah. that I've ever, ever had, I've always volunteered for first. I've always gone and just said, give me a chance to do anything and you'll, you'll see. Yeah. And when you see, this is what, you know, I, this is what I'm, not, what I'm good at. This is what I enjoy doing. And because yeah. I enjoy doing it, I'm going to work really hard at yeah. doing it. And that, that, was, that was the... Yeah, it spiraled from there, really. I started doing yeah, one part. I was an employer, there. too. If someone came to me and said to volunteer time to show that they really want to do it, how can you say no to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, 
we'll talk about that later in Singapore, where that's not really an option. No, really, it was more than that. So through that, it grew to, you know, I mean, not just me doing the parties, but just, just learning a great deal of skills. And again, during that period, I used my new entrepreneurial business skills to take that, that simple installation of things and expand the part of the business for the decor. So we started, I found a list of 300 festivals and I emailed all our lists to these 300 festivals and mm. we got, I think the first year, we got maybe three or four responses back. And we, that basically okay. meant we would go down there, we would take our decorations to the festival, we would get you know, backstage access and, and tickets and we would have a really good time. Yeah. And I just during the time I just, refined it and developed it and you know got better and better at what i was doing and then the next year i think we maybe got seven or eight festivals and then the next year we were up to maybe 25 festivals all over europe and it was it was all and watching that momentum grow oh, on something that, that momentum and going to bigger and bigger and cooler festivals, getting paid the first van trip going out you know when you when you have a have a festival going on say in Germany and then one in you know Romania and then one in somewhere else and you pack up a van with as much stuff as you can possibly fit and in you and, just get and then you just drive and and go from the coolest parties in the world to the coolest parties and by the time you the good thing about setting up for a festival is you arrive a week before it starts so all the people you meet by the time the festival begins you're friends with everybody. You, you know everybody, you have yeah. a crew, you have a family there. and, and Which makes it that much better. Oh, it's so good. It's just, you know, you have, uh, it's, by the time the festival starts, you know your way around everywhere. You can get past all the security checkpoints and just, you can do whatever Sounds you like. Sounds like a dream for you. Oh, it's so <laughs> you, good. There's almost, this is your world now. Oh, you just, you know, when you decide, oh, I'm going to climb up on top of that, they'll be, oh, it's just miles, you know. Yeah. We'll let him off. The just day. let him do it. Yeah, He's yeah. a good climber. He won't fall. Exactly. <laughs> so life was, that was, that was when life was super, super sweet. So it seems like you you got to the top for mm -hmm. uh, for exactly what you wanted to do. You carved out this little niche for yourself. You even met Anna, your current girlfriend yep. at the time. And it, you were riding high. And unfortunately, like everything on this earth, everything comes to an end. And absolutely, I got a really good job here in Singapore. Yeah, so we I met Anna. Uh, I think it was just before or just after I'd done a really big festival tour going away. Yeah, and um, came back, met Anna, and we got along like a house on fire. And uh, she was the first person I'd met ever who was able to balance a full-on high-profile. <laughs> corporate job, not super corporate, but a proper yeah. career and be respected by our entire office full of people and operate at a really high level during the week. And, and then, then at the weekend, be a real party animal, you know? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely rock every dance floor that we went to. And this, this double life that was pulled off so perfectly, it was a real uh, eye-opener for me because I had been very much just living in the party life. I'd, I'd formed a career within the party life. Right. But then I saw what Anna was doing and, and it just stood out to me from, from everyone that I knew or everyone that I'd seen. And um, yeah, myself and Anna, got, we got along fantastically. And, and during the, about a year after we met, uh, Anna got headhunted for a job over in Singapore. Right. Um, so it was about a month after you met. So yeah. it was really early on. We were too. actually traveling in, in Goa at the time. 
when she did the Skype conversation with her boss to be. Yeah. Um, because we, we we would do a lot of traveling to festivals together. That would um, with my job, I would meet people and we would get invites over to, you know, you know to Lebanon this and party, India party, and Austria and all party. over. Yeah. And we were in India at the time, and uh, her boss, her new boss, came on and was like, "You've got the job. I'll see you in uh, see you in a few weeks." Holy shit! Yeah, and we were like, oh, "I guess now we have a decision there. to make." Yeah. yeah. And uh, my my philosophy always is, or just I say philosophy, uh, just one of the pieces of information I've always heard from people and thought it's a good piece of advice is that you only regret the decisions that you don't take. Yeah. You know, you've got to grab opportunities when they come. And my life at the time couldn't have been any better. I was I thought, you know, this was awesome. Um, yeah. But the opportunity to move to the other side of the world, I'd never even been to Asia. To, to move to the other side of the world, to start again and see what's out there. Uh, with Anna, it was too good an opportunity to take. Yeah, so it was a complete reset of everything that you pretty much had built. Totally. Um, so we, we packed up our stuff and moved over to Singapore. Was that the only thing that was going through? Because there's got to be something that was, you know, you, of course you don't, you can't regret, or you can't make regrets, or like you know, pass up mm-hmm. on opportunities, especially with... This girl that you met, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but was there any process that you walked through in your head? Was there a pros and cons list, or did you just literally say "screw it" and I mean, go? There was like, totally what was going I mean, on in your head at the time. My, what was going on in my head was that it's not a permanent change, right? At, at that point, you know, um, the festival the festivals were really good, and I enjoyed what I was doing. And at the same time as doing the festivals, I uh, I was working. I had a just a position with a, a temping agency where anytime I wanted to work, I could go to them and say, give me a load of work. Yeah. And I could work behind a bar or I could, one of the, the ways I would clean toilets in a football stadium, yeah. you know, and just do really long shifts, make a ton of money and then go away again. Yeah. Um, and that was a good, you know, it was a, it was a fun and enjoyable way to do things. Um, so this is why when it, this opportunity came up, it didn't seem... You the permanence of it. of it wasn't really there. It's like, if I go yeah. away and go do this, let's say we do a year. The plan was always to do a year. Yeah. We'll go away, we do a year, we get a ton of experience, and, you know, if we don't like it, we come back. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing holding us there. Um, so there really wasn't ever a... Yeah, I feel like that really sucks a lot of people in or puts a lot of people down is that their decisions are so permanent. Yeah, I, even things like, you know, just when you do a little bit more research, they have good internet over here and things. It's not like all our family connections and things like that who will be seeing. You know, we can, it's a year. We can, we can Skype them, we can do this, we can do that. It's, yeah. it's too good an opportunity not to take. I, th- I would recommend to anybody, if you get the opportunity to get out of your country and go somewhere else, even for a short period of time, ideally to work, but even just for a short period of time, it's awesome. It gives you such a perspective on what's going on back at home. It's only when you step out and look back that you can really see the true picture that you're in. I 1,000% agree. Because, because when you're in the picture, agree. you can't see what's going on around. And it's only when you see more and get an outside understanding that you suddenly, you're like, it just becomes much more clear. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't... No, all your friends are still your friends. All your family is still your family. It's just 
you just get a bit more perspective on how everything is. Right. It's almost a bird's eye view of the systems that you live in. Exactly. And you, you, it takes another system. You see the good bits and you see the bad bits. Exactly. And seeing, an, seeing another system, yeah, it exposes the good and the bad and then you can creatively make your own system and systems afterwards, at least, is what I'm starting to do as well. Absolutely. And, well, you took the opportunity. Yeah. You, you went to Singapore, to the land of rules, and for everyone listening out there, you can probably guess that the first parts were probably pretty hard. Like well, we really saying, didn't know what we were getting into, to be perfectly honest. We knew that there was lots of rules, but it only really, I think maybe the week before we left, I just Googled the word Singapore and hippie just to see what would come up. Yeah. Because we were trying to find some, you know, just, just see what, from going to a lot of hippie festivals, yeah. see what was out there. And the first result that came up was a news article from like, the Singapore government about how they'd successfully managed to resist the Bohemian Plague for over 50 years. And they, this is like the third, it didn't, I didn't even click on the page, I just saw it in the Google results. said, oh shit. Oh man, resist the Bohemian Plague for over 50 years. And then all the, <laughs> the other articles are like, it was only like 10 years ago they started letting people in with long hair. And, uh, I'm thinking, hmm. So from the world that you just came from. Yeah, this is going to be a small glimpse of the world that you're about to enter. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we arrived and, um, yeah, it's, it's, Singapore's a, a, a fantastic place. It's a, it it's a real utopia of kind of, it's, I think it's, even compared to Tokyo, it's the most futuristic city I've, I've ever been to. It's yeah. just an architect's playground and everything is clean and everything is beautiful and everything runs on time and it's, yeah, you know, it's, as you say, it's a beautiful temperature, the humidity is a bitch, but it's a beautiful temperature. Other than humidity, and, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, it's really awesome. So we were here for, I think it was about, I think about three weeks before Anna started her job. Um, so we found a, a place to live. And yeah, uh, just like that, uh, it went from being a holiday to Anna began her job in this agency. And I was left, you know, trying to find a job. It was almost as if you were back to that 15 year old self again, with not Anna now is off doing her thing. Pretty much exactly you the were, same circumstance again. You, you had no, you had all this time and came from this world of you were you built this thing up to some to empire of festivals and now you're back to well that was that was nothing. the hard part because firstly it was hard for Anna's perspective because when Anna joined her job the working culture over here is is mental it really is you work it's just expected that you work if you leave when it's still daylight outside it's a very good day you know Wow. And so normally you would leave, a, it, it's perfectly natural for you to leave 10, 11 o'clock every night. You know, that's, that's just normal. That's, you keep going and keep going. You and just keep going to. So when Anna moved over here, just to try and learn an entirely new culture and have several teams that she needed to try and prove that she was the head of, you know, just, just to gain their respect. Right. Um, the beginning was tough. She, she, worked, she was working every hour of every day. So by the time we got to the weekends, she was absolutely knackered and all she wanted to do was just sleep and rest. Yeah. Because it was really tough. Myself, on the other hand, I arrived over 
and I was sending out, I was reaching out to lots of people for interviews and jobs and all this kind of thing, and I was, um, you know, learning my way around, but really I, was, I had no friends over here. Um, I always say that the three things that you do when you're unemployed, you know, what, what do you do when you're unemployed? You hang out with your friends. Yeah. Um, maybe smoke a bit of weed, get stoned, play some video games. Yeah. Or pornography. <laughs> and you've got no friends over here. Weed is massively illegal and pornography is illegal. So you got nothing. Like, so, so what you, do you do when you're three, unemployed? Your top man? three is crossed off the list totally. right there. Plus, Anna's getting worked to death. Yeah. And she, on the weekends, and the party scene is... Eh, here, and to not say the least, not existing. And so, you're looking at the situation again after having so much. What was your next step? Like what? It was like, hard, man. It was really hard not to get depressed. To be perfectly honest, because um, every day is the same here. Like it's no, I, you know, every day is exactly the same weather. You know, 80, yeah. 28 to 32 degrees, 80 to 100 percent humidity, chance of thunderstorms. Yeah. It's the same. The sun rises and sets at the same time every day. So you'd wake up and Anna would go out to work and I would go back to sending out emails about jobs and just not getting any replies from anyone. You know, no it, people who would send a, uh, an email back and say, no, sorry, you're not suitable for this role. I would. Uh, that's perfect. Like, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you for, for acknowledging that. that I'm a exist. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging my email. And I just kept trying and trying to get different bits of work and speak with different people. And the biggest problem was they need to employ a certain amount of foreigners, uh, sorry, locals, before you can employ a foreigner over here. Yeah. Plus there's a, um, you know, you need to employ the person for a certain X amount. It's quite a high monthly rate. Yeah, and just everyone I was looking at in events agencies doing different things, trying to trying to turn the skills I had from the festivals doing decor over here because nothing existed. Yeah, it was it was it was a bit too much of a risk for anyone to take on me. Right, and my normal tactic, as I mentioned before, of every job I've ever had, volunteering, I volunteer, show how people how good I am, and then they give me a job. Right. Well. I can't volunteer over here. It's illegal for me to. It's illegal for anyone to have me working over here, even on a volunteer basis. So all of your skills that you've been cultivating over your entire life were now just everything I knew how to do and everything that I'd been building just seemed didn't translate. Didn't translate, and uh, to make matters worse, even at the weekend, you know, even when we wanted to go out, there was no music anywhere that we wanted. Like when you just want to release, man, I would. Every weekend we would be out dancing at multiple parties and dance right. was really our release. And there was no music. And it just, it was really tough for, for a long, long time. Um, so how did you combat that? So a lot of, I, I feel like I would do the same thing. It almost fall into this depression. Everything is the same. There's no move, movement. It's the day in, day out. It's just trying and bashing your head against the wall that just won't move. Yeah. So how mentally did you get over the just constant grind eventually well, getting I mean, to that breakthrough point? You've got to keep trying. One of the hardest parts was I kept getting jobs. I kept going for interview. You know, I'd get a reply back. I'd go for an interview. 
I'd get the job, even if it was, they started getting more and more obscure, the jobs that I was getting yeah. interviews for and things that I would like less and less. Uh, but, you know, I needed a job. I needed, needed something. Uh, I needed yeah. something. And each time I would get a job, and I got a job probably about every month I would get a job. And then, then for whatever reason, they'd do the work, you know, apply for the work permit or something would happen, and each time it would fall through. Uh-huh. And so I keep telling people back at home, oh, I've got a job, I get super excited, and then each time it fall through. And so in the end, I stopped just... even telling people that I'd, I'd got a position. And, um, How after... many times do you think that happened? Oh, at least seven, seven or eight times. So there's seven or eight, like, almost breakthrough failures, yeah. and you're just like, shit. And during this time, there was one, so later on, there was one particular company which I interviewed for, which was run by the, the former directors of Cirque du Soleil. Very small little agency, but they handled, I just saw what they did and it was super cool. You know, the really creative kind of shows, really, really cool stuff. And I interviewed for them, but I was also interviewing for another, like a big conference firm at the same time. And in the end, they didn't have enough locals employed to employ me. Yeah. Um, Whereas this big conference firm doing something way worse did. So I had to, uh, you know, I went over to this big conference firm, I got the job, and then again the work pass fell through. Oh, and I was, I was so frustrated. So in the end I just decided, man, what do I have to lose? And so I just picked up my laptop and went to this company and I just said, look, I know that you can't employ me, but I really have nothing else to do. Like, I have nothing. I'm just going to sit in your office here and just take this table and sit on the laptop and just maybe when you get something, you can, you can give it a chance. Pass it, pass pass it over. Me. And I was there for maybe a month before so anything you went happened. every single day yeah, yeah, to every this day. place for a month. And just sat in their office and did, did what I was doing on, you know, I was only playing on my laptop anyway or doing, you know, I was trying to design things at the time. And every single day... And, you know, got to know these guys. And then we got uh, an opportunity to come in to build the world's largest paper bag for a Japanese shopping company that wanted to come over here. The world's largest paper bag. Yeah. Um, like the big shopping bag. And within two minutes of this going around the office, I realized that I knew more about this, a lot more about this than anyone else in the room. Even though I had zero knowledge or understanding as to how how, how to, to make do a it. giant paper but bag. just using just using ideas of if I had to do this how would I do it you know just that knowledge was already way beyond anyone what else anyone else world. could do and and this this led them to saying well why don't you why don't you help us to to get this built yeah and that was my first project I came on board we built the world's largest paper bag and I got to, on the event days itself, I was on site, you know, running everything and doing, and that's when they got to see, it was the opportunity for them to see, oh, okay. This guy. This, this is what he can do. Yeah. Um, and that was basically the, the start of working for those guys. You know, uh, it, was, it was completely different to what I'd done before. It was an office-based job, mainly just working. I was a technical and production director for this company. And... I, it was, it was blagging it. 
it was it was making it up for the first. Just taking <laughs> yeah, educated guesses. Like, All right, we're just gonna try this out and see what and happens. Finding, and finding skilled people who the, the, the good thing was I had big budgets to work with. Yeah. And so I would just find everyone wanted to sell their things to me, so I'd find the good people, and then I'd be like, "This is what I think," and I'd just ask, "Is this right?" And they'd be like, "Yeah, maybe just change this." And so like, I, I oh, built perfect. a network of people around me, who who could help me get through it. And the more I did, the more I learned, and the more I picked up. And um, what I also brought to the table there is what they didn't have. Um, I came from a background of working with no budget yeah. at all. Um, you know, everything had to be made or improvised. I know when I came over here and I saw the prices of what people were paying for things. I couldn't believe like, it, damn. man. It was, and this was, I think this was what really secured me the position in the job. It was the fact that when I looked at things, I know just from my, how much certain things cost. And when it's cheaper for me to fly a sound system in from the UK than it is for me to rent one here. When I look Which at the cost of things, I'll be like, cool. you're renting out a light at the same cost as it costs to buy the light. Yeah. How does, how does that How work? does this even make sense? And uh, this is where I really came, particularly on the government projects, it really excelled because I knew how much things should cost yeah. reasonably. You have seen outside the bubble of Singapore, the expensive bubble of exactly. Singapore. And I know I can, I can visualize, rather than people who just accept it, I can visualize how things are made. So when we build something, it's like, well, I can guess that this would be how you build it and this would be the materials you need, so why is it costing me 50 times that cost? Right. Um, and yeah, so that was basically the start of me. It was tough. You know, that was the start of me getting a job over here and things flourishing. And it was, it was, it was hard, but to be perfectly honest, I was so pleased to be out of the house. So pleased to have the chance. That and you're like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm just going to do this. And oh, it's yeah. better than sitting at home with nothing to do. Totally. And um, that was the start of the transformation over here. And, and it seems like... All through your life, you've had different obstacles that required some kind of grinding or just flat out, failure's not an option, let's do this, we have to try something. And it's worked out in every single time. And I know a lot of people struggle with that, creating opportunities for themselves, getting out there, forcing your way into a system or bypassing some of the so-called rules that we think are set up before us. So to wrap it all up, <clears throat> excuse me, to wrap it all up, it seems like you have a knack for infiltrating or gaining that first step. I think it's and, just persistence. Like it, it's a desire to, you know, like it's it's just keeping going, keeping going at something, and a desire not to stop until you kind of get what you want. And some days you have really lazy days when you do nothing. Sometimes you have lazy weeks yeah. when you do nothing, but You've just got to keep trying to make those opportunities. And when those opportunities come, you've got to work really hard, as hard as you can possibly work and put in every bit of hour and everything that you can do, because that's how you... Getting the opportunity is the, like, it's the, hard, part. Is the hard part. But once you have the opportunity, you need to make sure that you stand out above anyone else and you don't waste this opportunity. Yeah. Because the wasted opportunities... They're, they're the worst. They're the know. ones that you regret the most. They're the ones that you regret the most, you know. Um, totally. When, you're, when someone gives you a chance 
to show yourself and particularly in something that you think you'd enjoy doing you have to take it with you drop everything and take it and and really make it work because if you don't you'll always look back and think man i know i had that other thing on on that day or you know i know i was supposed to be doing this or i know i was already tired but i really should have i really should have seen where that lead went to yeah because and that is a much worse fate much than worse. trying and failing exactly every single time i think uh, it's a lyric from one of the songs which I, I've been listening to lately, but they say if you try and if you try to do something that you love and fail, then you fail once. If you do something that you don't love and still fail, then you fail twice. Because you wasted that time not even doing something that you want to do. So it's better to try things that you love, because that's the worst that can happen. You fail and you have to find another option. And there's always more options. Thank you, Miles, for coming on the show. I think that is a perfect way to wrap it up. And I hope everyone listening takes something to heart. It's, this world is, is a bunch of systems that were man-made and wrapped together. And it's up to you to find the right place for you and where you fit. And sometimes you need to just kick ass, get into a place and And never accept that way. you're the broken piece, man. I think that was the biggest thing. All through my childhood and all through different things people always thought that there was a problem or you know that thought you know the way that i was doing things it's not it doesn't fit with the system it doesn't work everyone is completely unique everyone is different and everyone works in different environments and as long as you stick to what you believe and and, and kind of keep going keep trying you know, I think everyone, there's a perfect role for everyone and a perfect thing for everyone out there. And everyone plays a valuable part in contributing to the world that we're in. So never, never believe that you're broken or never believe that, you know, you're not as good at something as, as someone else. That's, I think that's really key. You have to, you have to love yourself, man. I love it. I, I, I love every second of it. And hell, I'm going to take that to heart because I, sometimes I need to say that as, especially when it... I look at the things that I want to do when I get back. So thank you, sir. It's been a good-ass time. My pleasure. And come, come stay with this guy on Couchsurfing. If you're in Singapore, hit up Miles. Oh. You know us have a good party. Even Please in the, do, guys. Even in the world. Well, I'll rules. probably put you to work for at least one night, but <laughs> I assure you the rest of the, the trip will be highly enjoyable. This has been so far. Thank you, sir. And we'll talk soon. Three, Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Oyster World Radio, a production of Oyster World LLC. Thanks again, Miles Zebot, for coming on the show. We miss all of our under-the-bridge peeps out there in Singapore. Keep up to date on everything going on in the Big Gap here on Instagram at Nathan.Wonders. We're in New Zealand. Check out the links in the show description for more information. Special thanks to Charlie Milken for all of the Oyster Jams. Check them out on Spotify or at charliemilken.com. That's M-I-L-L-I-K-I-N. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, at patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio. Thanks again for tuning in to Oyster World Radio. We'll be back in two weeks. But until then, this is Nathan Lieberman signing off. I can't take control of my life If I'm too busy looking at the stars and thinking about all time